Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 10th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. Starting off today, let's take a look at the weather. The forecast for today is mostly sunny with a northwesterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour, a high of 29 and a low of 18. Then, Saturday, mostly sunny with a southwesterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour, a high Saturday of 38, a low of 21. On Sunday, Partly sunny, southwesterly wind at 5 to 15 miles per hour. The high will be 43 and the low 26. Then on Monday, partly sunny, a westerly wind at 5 to 15 miles per hour. A high of 42 and a low of 28. A look at today's top weather story from meteorologist Jan Ryer. Yesterday's winter storm system came with varying types of precipitation across eastern Iowa. Cedar Rapids saw rain to sleet to snow within a matter of about 10 minutes, and this quick transition was common across the state. Precipitation over Iowa begins as snow, yes, even on the hottest day in July. During warmer weather, it melts and falls to the ground as rain. This is how yesterday morning began with a warm layer near the surface. Just a difference of a degree or two took temperatures down to freezing. When raindrops enter a shallow cold layer near the surface, they refreeze, forming sleet, sometimes called ice pellets. As that cool layer deepens, the snow never melts and is able to reach the ground. That's today's top weather story from meteorologist Jan Ryherd. Let's go to the front page of today's Gazette and a story written by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette, Support Waning for Chickadee Checkoff. Donations to Iowa's Fish Wildlife Fund, informally called the Chickadee Checkoff, fell nearly 15% last year, but have been gradually shrinking since the fund was first created in the early 1980s. Study and support for Iowa's non-game animals, including songbirds, turtles, frogs, owls, and salamanders, is needed more than ever as many species decline in numbers, mostly because of lost habitat. North America has lost nearly 30% of its birds, about 3 million, since the 1970s, according to a 2019 article in the journal Science. Stephanie Shepard A wildlife diversity biologist for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources says, There is a lot of vulnerable wildlife. We still don't have a good feel for how they are doing. She went on to say that when the Iowa legislature created the chickadee checkoff in 1982, Iowans were eager to check that box on their state income tax forms. That year, Iowans donated $238,477, which would be more than $700,000 today. Over the years, more checkoff programs were added for taxpayers to make donations to other causes, including the Iowa State Fair Foundation, Firefighters Preparedness Fund, and Veterans Trust Fund, and Child Abuse Prevention. Now, these checkoffs are listed in Contribution Line 57 under Step 9 on the Iowa 1040 Individual Income Tax Form. Shepard said, but more than 90% of Iowans file their individual income taxes online. 
and it may be harder to find the checkoff line through online programs. Of online flyers in Iowa, 65% hire a tax preparer who isn't likely to ask whether taxpayers want to donate through the checkoff. She said they are trying to help people get through this process most people don't enjoy as quickly as possible. Iowans who want to donate through the checkoff should tell their tax preparer in advance, but if they forget, Iowa now has an online site where people can make donations directly to the Wildlife Diversity Program. The program's donors have steadily declined in number over the years, from nearly 13,000 in 2003 to 6,269 for tax year 2021. Those donors were extra generous in 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic made outdoor spaces some of the only safe areas for recreation and socializing. About 7,200 donors gave an average $24 donation that year, which resulted in $175,000 for the Wildlife Diversity Program. Average donation amounts were about the same in 2021, but there were a 1,000 fewer donors. Just under 150,000 was raised. The Chickadee Checkoff was the first dedicated state funding to the Wildlife Diversity Program, which also gets half of the revenue from sales of natural resources license plates. The Iowa DNR also uses some hunting and fishing license fees to support non-game animals. Iowa's five Wildlife Diversity Program staff members work with land managers to make sure they are incorporating practices that support non-game animals. Staff led surveys of bald eagles, frogs, and toads, and the rusty-patched bumblebee to see how these species continue to fare in Iowa. Program staff will put up nesting boxes for barn owls, which are endangered in Iowa, and do educational programming, among other activities. Shepard said, if the Wildlife Diversity Program had more money, there could be more staff spread around the state, rather than be used only in Boone. It could work with cities to make them more friendly to birds and butterflies and update publications, some of which haven't been refreshed since the early 1990s. Moving now to the Iowa Today page, we have a story written by Isabella Zaluska of the Gazette. Work to replace Gober Street Bridge in Iowa City starting in April. Dateline, Iowa City. Drivers and pedestrians should expect detours this spring when the heavily traveled Gilbert Street Bridge near downtown Iowa City is replaced. The four-lane concrete bridge over Ralston Creek will be removed and replaced with a new four-lane design that meets local and state guidelines for traffic and pedestrians. There will be six-foot sidewalks on both sides, as well as improvements to enhance the neighborhood and offer views of the creek. Water main improvements will occur north of the bridge, and overhead utilities in the project area will be moved underground. This portion of Gilbert Street will be closed for about five months as the bridge is being replaced. Construction on the $2.9 million project is expected to begin in late April and wrap up in early October, with incentives if the contractor finishes early. The Iowa City Council this week approved project details and estimated cost of uh, construction. 
Council member Sean Harmson said during the Tuesday meeting, the timeline and speed of this project is going to be really important because of the nature of this thoroughfare. Inspection by the Iowa Department of Transportation and the city over the years identified the bridge as needing to be replaced. The current bridge was constructed in 1972. Melissa Clough, the Special Projects Administrator, said there is advanced deterioration of the bridge deck and superstructure, as well as significant cracking and spalling that requires frequent maintenance. It also was noted that there is a widespread minor damage and also no barrier separating pedestrians from vehicles. The city received grant funding from the Iowa DOT of up to $1 million for the project. The city will cover remaining costs with bond financing. The state will bid the project in March. City staff will go to the Iowa City Council then in early April with a contractor recommendation for the council to consider. Construction would begin later that month. The contractor will have 170 calendar days to complete the work necessary to open the street to through traffic. This will require a six-day work week with the option to work Sundays. The contractor can receive an additional $4,000 per day for completing the work early with a maximum incentive of $40,000, according to Clough. For every day the road is closed beyond the 170 days, there is a penalty of $4,000 per day. Clough said the project will be broken up into phases. The first phase will be preparing for road closure since a complete closure of Gilbert Street will be needed. City staff will have one to two weeks before construction begins to start putting up detour signs. Council members this week highlighted how it will be important to communicate the detours to the public, with this being one of the city's main thoroughfares. The city typically communicates information about road projects and closures through its website and social media accounts. Councilmember Laura Burgess said, I think we've learned some good lessons last year about how we communicate about road closures. I would imagine that we're going to be really aggressive in letting people know that one of our main thoroughfares will be closed for a number of months, and if the schedule changes, we'll let them know as soon as possible. A project map shows drivers should use South Dubuque Street as a detour. Pedestrians should use South Lynn Street as a detour. Clough said there will be accommodations for parking and access to businesses during construction and added, we'll be constructing a temporary driveway at the parking lot on the north side of the bridge to access Maiden Lane so that traffic can still get down Gilbert to assess businesses and then get out onto Maiden Lane. The second and third phases will be construction of storm sewer and the bridge. For phase four, once the road is open, the storm sewer at the Court Street intersection will be completed. Also on the Iowa Today page is a story written by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette. Testimony starts today for man accused of shooting Lynn Deputy. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. A jury was selected late Thursday, and opening statements begin today for a Chicago man accused of firing multiple rounds at a Lynn County Sheriff's deputy while fleeing a convenience store robbery in Coggin. Stanley L. Donahue is charged with attempted murder of a peace officer, two counts of first-degree robbery, two counts of false imprisonment, 
woeful injury, attempt to elude, disarming a peace officer, trafficking in stolen weapons, and possession of a firearm as a felon. The prosecution thought testimony might start Thursday afternoon, but jury selection took longer than expected. Gazette reporter Trish Mahiffey will provide live coverage from the courtroom starting with openings at 9 a.m. today, as the trial is expected to go into next week. Donahue was accused of robbing the Casey's General Store on Highway 13 in Coggan on June 22, 2021, forcing two clerks into a cooler and stealing cash, cigarette cartons, and personal belongings, according to a criminal complaint. Police said Donahue fired 10 rounds at Deputy William Halverson when he responded to the 10.19 p.m. alarm. Halverson had been a deputy for seven years at the time and was wearing a protective vest but did suffer two gunshot wounds in the hip and leg. Donahue took Halverson's duty weapon and fled the scene in a minivan but was captured after an overnight 14-hour search that involved drones and police dogs. The search ended when a TV news crew spotted him walking along Highway 13 near Coggan and notified authorities. If Donahue was convicted on all 10 charges, he faces up to 112 years in prison with a mandatory 65 years to serve before being eligible for parole. Donahue has remained in jail since arrest under a $2.5 million bond. Also in the Gazette today, good news for some teenagers with the story written by the Gazette's Des Moines Bureau saying a Republican proposal opens more jobs to Iowa teenagers. A 16- or 17-year-old in Iowa could sling drinks at the local watering hole, and 14- and 15-year-olds would be able to work at other jobs they currently are barred from under a proposal from state lawmakers. And even more work for 14- to 17-year-old Iowa children in manufacturing and construction, among others, would be available via waivers issued by the state's workforce and education agencies under the proposal that received its first legislating blessing yesterday at the Iowa Capitol. A pair of Republican Iowa legislators this week advanced the proposal, praising it as a means to help businesses find workers in a tight employment market and to help young Iowans become more engaged in work. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig and the bill's manager in the Senate, said this bill is an incredible opportunity for everybody involved and is something worth looking into. We're going to end up with a generation of skilled leaders because of these efforts. Democrats warned that it could be perilous to allow younger Iowans to work in some of the jobs which are contained in the proposal. Senator Bill Dossler, a Democrat of Waterloo, said, There are a couple parts of this bill that, to me, are very dangerous. We need to be very, very careful in what we're doing with this bill. Among the examples of what the proposal would make legal are, 14-year-olds could work detasseling corn in freezers and meat lockers, loading and unloading vehicles, and in laundry. 15-year-olds could work as lifeguards, loading and unloading groceries and stocking shelves with items weighing less than 30 pounds, and light assembly work provided it is not conducted on or near a machine. 15-year-olds could work up to six hours a day and until 11 p.m. Currently, they cannot work more than four hours per day or later than 9 p.m. But beyond that, 
more work opportunities would be available for 14- to 17-year-old Iowa children. They could request a waiver from the directors of the state workforce and education agencies for jobs in manufacturing, mining, construction, or processing, among others. That caused heartburn for Dotzler, who said these directors, who are political appointees, may not have the expertise needed to decide whether such a waiver would be appropriate or safe. Dotzler also expressed concern with a provision in the bill that would make it so any business that employs a student in a work-based learning program is not subject to civil liability for any claims, including that student, even if the incident is due to the business's negligence. And, he said he believes, some of the legislation may conflict with federal laws and regulations. Dotzler said... The business community across this state is suffering a real shortage of workers, and I think that is the real basis for this proposal. I think they're looking to Iowa's youth to fill in some of the gaps. Business groups who testified at Thursday's hearing said they support the legislation. The groups who support the bill, according to state lobbying records, represent businesses, home builders, hotels, and restaurants. Schultz and Senator Adrian Dickey of Packwood signed off on the proposal, making it eligible for consideration by the full Senate Committee on Workforce, which Dickey chairs. Dickey said the proposal is designed to help find more workers in Iowa by reducing what he called burdensome regulations. Dickey said, we have a heartbeat shortage in the state of Iowa. We have to step back and take a look at the issue. There's another story about youngsters having to deal with being students, written by Caleb McCullough, again, of the Gazette's Des Moines Bureau. Says less than three weeks after Governor Kim Reynolds signed a sweeping law creating taxpayer-funded education savings accounts for private schools, Iowa lawmakers are now advancing a bill to loosen testing requirements for students taking advantage of the program. Under House Study Bill 138, state-required assessments would be optional, not required, for students using education savings accounts. The students still would be required to take all federally required assessments, including the Iowa Statewide Assessment of Student Progress. A three-member subcommittee advanced the bill Thursday with only Republican support. Representative Taylor Collins, a Republican of Minneapolis, said at the meeting, I've said it before and I'll say it again, accountability is best left to parents. Governor Reynolds' private school education bill, which she signed into law on January 24th, included a provision requiring students in private schools that use an education savings account to take all applicable federal and state assessments. The law will allow students to take the state's full per-pupil cost, around $7,600 next year, to pay for private school tuition and other expenses. The program is expected to cost at least $345 million by the time it is fully implemented. While the bill advanced in the subcommittee, its chances of becoming law aren't clear. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said he hadn't seen the bill, but removing the requirement for state assessments was not a priority for him. He said, that's not been part of anything that we've discussed as a caucus or had any conversations with any of the committee chairs on. Students at independently accredited private schools are not currently required to take state or federally required assessments. 
Iowa D. Department of Education spokesperson Heather D. said, while students at state-accredited private schools are. Both types of accredited private schools are eligible for the new accounts. The major state-required test is a literacy screening assessment for grades K through 3, and the assessment continues for students who are at risk. Public school advocates were roundly opposed to the legislation, which was passed and signed that we are making this modification. This is less than two weeks after the legislation was passed. That said, was said by Melissa Peterson, a lobbyist for the Iowa State Education Association, which is Iowa's main public teachers' union. Melissa went on to say, We do think there was concern with the original bill and that people were ultimately in support of the bill because there was this accountability measure in place. Eric Gornson is a lobbyist for the Iowa Association of Christian Schools and said the original law required private schools to treat different populations of students differently. Students without education savings accounts would not have the same testing requirements as other students. He said the schools he represents administer objective testing and have required testing from the accreditation agencies they use. He said many Parents come to our schools because they like the way we test, because they like the way we instruct. The main federally required assessment, which is the Iowa Statewide Assessment of Student Progress, still would be required by students who have education savings accounts. Students are required to take that assessment in grades 3 through 11. There is also an alternative assessment for students with individualized education plans and assessments for English language learners. Democrats echoed the comments made by public education advocates, saying the bill would eliminate the accountability measures in place to ensure students using publicly funded education savings accounts were succeeding. House Democratic leader Jennifer Confers said, This is what we said would happen with school vouchers, that private schools would continue to get away with not following the rules and not following along and not being held accountable. We're not even three weeks out from passing vouchers, and we have already are removing accountability from our private schools. Peterson said she is concerned the legislature will continue changing the requirements on private schools, including accreditation, that were provided in the law. Peterson said, Our fear is that, again, the accountability measures that we heard the floor manager proclaim was accreditation, the assessments, and the parental involvement. And this House study bill tries to get rid of one of those three elements. And I fear the accreditation element might be next. Now it's time to move on to the Insight page where we have today's Gazette editorial. And the headline for the editorial is Moms for Liberty, Now in Charge. The Gazette says, Last week, at an event hosted by Moms for Liberty, which is a group pushing to remove what it considers obscene or objectionable books from school libraries and curriculum, Governor Kim Reynolds proclaimed that if a book is banned by one Iowa school district, it should be banned in all districts. By this week, her staff modified the governor's position. On Monday, they said books banned in one district would still be available in other districts, but only with written permission from parents. That same day, five members of Moms for Liberty testified before the House Government Oversight Committee. 
the parents cherry-picked the most explicit passages from a list of books, most written by LGBTQ authors and people of color. They complained about the obstacles they faced in seeking to remove or restrict access to the books. Some Republicans on the panel suggested that books should be rated like movies. We'd love to hear who will be in charge of that rating system. Republicans who control the legislature also are considering bills that would create a process through which students and parents can report educators who violate a state law against teaching divisive concepts such as institutional racism and how slavery shaped the nation's history. They're seeking to restrict the teaching of LGBTQ concepts in elementary and middle schools. Republicans are pursuing a bill that would force educators to inform parents if a student is transgender or is questioning their gender. It's clear where all this is heading, should these measures become law. Our public schools will be shackled by authoritarian, politically motivated edicts intended to dictate what hundreds of thousands of Iowa students can and cannot learn in school. State actions that historically have been aimed at improving public schools will be used instead to narrow their educational missions to please a minority of outraged parents whose complaints are being elevated by Republican politicians eager to attack public schools. It's called parents' rights, but the rights are only for parents who agree with Moms for Liberty. We don't need state lawmakers to intervene in local disputes over books. There are processes in place locally to challenge books. Just because banning a book is not easy does not mean the local process is flawed, and one school district's decision should not affect other school districts. Teachers should not have to face state retribution for teaching accurate, unflinching American history. Nor should teachers be mandatory informants when kids seek support. Curtailing LGBTQ curriculum sends the message that our state leaders believe the lives of our fellow Iowans are somehow shameful. It's a reckless and dishonest message. Republicans should set aside these irresponsible measures and get back to the job Iowans expect them to do, and that's improving public schools while respecting the rights and liberties of all students and families. And that's today's Gazette editorial. Now on to today's community letters, and we do have two of them. The first one comes from David Remley of Anamosa, who says... The Biden administration's failure to destroy the Chinese spy balloon promptly after it entered U.S. airspace is concerning. As the balloon passed through Alaska, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and Nebraska, five of the eight least densely populated states, according to WorldAtlas.com, no action was taken to bring down the balloon because of the administration's concerns for public safety. Yet the administration enables a very porous southern border, allowing Iowa uh, large quantities of fentanyl and other illicit drugs and dangerous criminals, which directly and indirectly greatly diminish the public safety of Americans on a daily basis. And that's a letter from David Remley of Anamosa. Our second letter comes from Rich Hillier of Cedar Rapids, who says, 
Socialism is a scare word they have hurled at every advance the people have made in the last 20 years. Socialism is what they called public power. Socialism is what they called social security. Socialism is what they called farm price supports. Socialism is what they called bank deposit insurance. Socialism is what they call the growth of free and independent labor organizations. Socialism is their name for almost anything that helps all the people. Harry S. Truman said that in 1952. It was true then, and it's even truer now. And that's from Rich Hillier of Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 10th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. And we start off with the shorter other notices from Cedar Rapids. Henry H. Godwin, age 99, died Sunday, February 5th. The Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home of Cedar Rapids is in charge of those arrangements. From Decorah, Wayne Hansen, age 66, died Wednesday, February 8th. Assisting the family will be the Helms Funeral Home of Decorah. From Millersburg, Mildred Mary McGuire, age 92, died Tuesday, February 7th. Assisting the family will be the Powell Funeral Home of North English. From Millersburg, as well, Jerry Lynn Pope, age 84, died Wednesday, February 8th. The Powell Funeral Home of Williamsburg is in charge of those arrangements. And Christy Crystal, excuse me, Crystal Yates, age 55, of Clinton, formerly of Andrew, died Wednesday, February 8th. The Carson Celebration of Life Center of McQuokita is in charge of those arrangements. Now for the longer, more detailed funeral announcements. John Vincent Lawler of rural Johnson County passed away on his 32nd birthday, February 4th, at home with his parents Mike and Kendra Lawler. Visits will be welcome at the family home at 4688 Blackhawk Avenue Southwest in Parnell. A memorial service and visitation will be from 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, February 12th at Gay Sia Funeral Home in Iowa City. John Lawrence Ford, age 64, of Marion, passed away February 4th. A celebration of life will be held at a future date. Iowa Cremation is assisting the family. Joy Vaughn Ann Chapman, age 75, of Greeley, passed away on Wednesday, February 8th, at her home in Greeley. Visitation for Joy Vaughn will be held from 9.30 to 10.30, Saturday morning, February 11th, at Bowen Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Manchester. Funeral services will follow at the funeral home at 10.30 a.m. with Ray Rarden officiating. The burial will take place at Fairview Cemetery in Earlville. The Bowen Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Manchester is in charge of the arrangements. Cletus Mosier, age 93, of rural Hawkeye, passed away Monday at Gunderson Palmer Lutheran Hospital and Clinics in West Union. Funeral services will be held at 2 o'clock Tuesday afternoon, February 14th, at the United Methodist Church in Hawkeye, with Mona Christie, lay speaker, officiating. Burial will follow at the Bethel Cemetery in rural Hawkeye. A celebration of life and meal will follow the communal, communal service at the Hawkeye Community Hall. 
Visitation will precede the funeral service at the church on Tuesday starting at noon. Memorials may be made to the family for later designation. Becker and Son Funeral Home in Hawkeye is assisting Cleet's family. Michelle Lee Yar, Y-A-H-R, age 64, of Stanwood, passed away Sunday, January 29th at home. Service arrangements are pending. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service of Mount Vernon is caring for Michelle's family. David Edward Weston, age 61, of Indianapolis, Indiana, and formerly of Fairfield, died Thursday, December 22nd. There will be no visitation or services. A celebration of life will be held for family only. Now let's turn our attention to the sports page where we have a story on boys' state swimming written by Mike Congdon, Dateline, Iowa City. For John Weagle, one sentence has encapsulated his senior swim season, and it says, Motivation stems from discipline. As the Iowa City City High Sprint freestyler prepares for his final meet as a high school swimmer, that focus has not wavered. Little Hawks coach Mandy Kowal said just yesterday he addressed the group as some did not do what was prescribed. It wasn't anything awful, yet it made a statement to all the guys. I love seeing this kind of development in the athletes. Weagle's final act comes this weekend when he and his Little Hawk teammates compete in the state meet at the University of Iowa's Campus Recreation and Wellness Center pool. Preliminaries are set for today at 5 o'clock with event finals set to begin on Saturday at 12.30. Defending champion and top-ranked Waukee is favored to defend his team title successfully with number 2 West Des Moines Valley and number 3 Pleasant Valley among the contenders. The top area schools are number 4 Iowa City West, number 6 Cedar Rapids Washington, and number 7 Linmar. Although the Little Hawks do not have the depth, they have the top individual qualifiers in Joel Polyak, who is second in the 200-yard individual medley, and Weagle, who is second in the 100 freestyle. At the start of the season, Polyak was expected to be a contender for top honors after two top six finishes at state last year. Weagle's best result was a 10th place finish in the 100 freestyle. Coach Kowal said, I strongly feel that he got motivated after state last year and then started lifting a lot. He kept swimming, but lifting made a huge difference for John. I remember running into him last spring, and he was super happy, incredibly motivated, and psyched to see the gains he was making in the weight room. There is also the senior effect. You know, you have one year to make the best of it. I've seen this across the board on so many teams. Athletes present in unmatched motivation to impress and print their legacy. It's always fun to see. That discipline has driven Weagle through to this weekend. He said about his prep finale, Well, especially as I head into this weekend, it's all I think about. I make sure to hydrate well, get plenty of sleep, and limit screen time. Study the sport by watching and learning from the pros and eating right. He went on to say, I'm willing to succeed, but I recognize I have to be willing to put in the authentic work, making the sacrifice to do that. Weagle had two strong role models in his own family. Sister Carly and brother Isaac were both outstanding swimmers during their prep careers, and both are now swimming in college. 
the youngest Weagle has a chance to accomplish something that eluded his siblings, and that is winning an individual state title. However, the odds are long as the top seed of the 100 freestyle is Waukee's multiple-time state champion, A.J. Abram. Weagle also has the number five qualifying time in the 50 freestyle. He said, with proper confidence, I would say there's a chance of anything, but the guys I'm racing in the 150 are fast. I want to enjoy my last state meet on the high school team and have fun with everyone I'm swimming with, but at the same time, I feel pressure to do well. Also on the sports page, there's a boys basketball notebook written by Jeff Johnson of the Gazette which says the postseason begins tonight with a few pigtail district openers in Class 1A. Things really get going in earnest Monday with the district games in 1A and 2A. Class 3A and 4A postseason pairings will be released Monday by the Iowa High School Athletic Association. Teams that have clinched at least a share of their conference championships are Charles City in the Northeast Iowa Conference, MFL Marmack in the Upper Iowa, Jessup in Wapsie Valley in the North Iowa Cedar League Central, Marion in the Walmack East, Williamsburg in the Walmack West, Dyersville Beckman in the River Valley North, Wilson in the River Valley South, Kyoto in the South Iowa Cedar East, Linville Sully in the South Iowa Cedar West, Bellevue Marquette in the Tri-Rivers East, and North Lynn in the Tri-Rivers West. HLV finished the regular season with an 11-11 record, and that marks the first time the Warriors have finished at 500 or above since 2012. We do have a few girls' basketball scores from yesterday in the Class 1A regional first round. It was Bellevue Marquette defeating North Cedar 68-18, and Sigourney defeated Moulton Udell 64-12. The latest rankings for girls' high school basketball are now out. In Class 5A, Pleasant Valley is on top of the list, with Iowa City Liberty number 10, Linmar number 11, and Iowa City West number 13. Dallas Center Grimes is on top in Class 4A, with Cedar Rapids Xavier number 6, Clear Creek Amanda number 7. In Class 3A, the final rankings of the year show that Esterville ELC is number one in the state, with Solon at number two. Vinton Shellsburg is 10th, Mount Vernon is 11th. In Class 2A, the number one team in the state is Dyke New Hartford. Iowa City Regina is number five in 2A, while in Class 1A, the top-rated team is Algona Garrigan, with North Lynn coming in at number three. And speaking of final ratings for the year, there is boys wrestling final ratings in Class 2A, where Osage is the number one team. Mount Vernon is tied with Webster City for number four. Switching our attention to the Iowa Today page, we have a story written by Emily Anderson of the Gazette. Man pleads guilty to arson and animal abuse. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. A Cedar Rapids man pleaded guilty Thursday morning to charges that he intentionally set a fire in a house with 15 animals inside. All 15 were killed. 47-year-old Jonathan J. Ramey was arrested in October on a charge of secondary arson and 15 charges of animal abuse. He had a jury trial scheduled to start next week, but he took a plea deal Thursday and pleaded guilty to the arson charge and one of the animal abuse charges. 
Per the plea agreement, the other 14 animal abuse charges will be dropped at sentencing. The sentence for the arson charge, which is up to 10 years in prison, will run consecutive to the sentence for the animal abuse charge, up to two years, for a total of 12 years. Ramey is scheduled to be officially sentenced April 11th. On October 1st, according to a criminal complaint, Ramey set fire in seven different places of the house where he lived at 1730 11th Street Northwest. Two smoke alarms had been removed from the building, and Ramey had texted the homeowner repeatedly, stating that he would set fire to the home with the animals inside. Fifteen animals were killed, four ducks, three rabbits, two geese, two dogs, two fish, and a cat and a snake. There's another story written by Caleb McCullough. It says Iowa House passes ban on gay panic defense. Iowans charged with a violent crime could not use a victim's sexuality or sexual orientation or gender identity as a mitigating factor in their defense under a bill passed Thursday in the Iowa House. It was one of several bills House lawmakers passed through the chamber, including bills prohibiting black bear hunting and creating protections against defamation lawsuits. The bill banning the gay panic defense passed the House with near-unanimous support. Representative Mark Cisneros, a Republican of Muscatine, was the only member to vote against it. Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilson, said, This defense is both heinous and ridiculous, and this bill would eliminate it as a defense in Iowa. The bill has passed the House twice in the past, but still has not made progress in the Senate. The bill was supported by LGBTQ rights groups, including One Iowa and Iowa Safe Schools. Now, as far as the black bear hunting bill goes, adds that black bears adds black bears to a list of fur-bearing animals that are protected and managed by the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. It passed in the House 90 to 5. The bill would make it a crime to hunt black bears without following regulations set out by the state. The bill was proposed by Representative Dave Jacoby, a Democrat from Coralville, and aims to protect the potential resurgence of the species in Iowa. Black bears originally are natives to Iowa, but the state has not had a viable population for over a century, according to the Iowa DNR. According to the agency, there have been more than 40 black bear sightings in Iowa since 2002. Jacoby said, this indeed is to protect black bears that migrate to Iowa or re-migrate to Iowa. This gives them a protected status until the DNR has time to review any hunting or trapping seasons that might be appropriate. House lawmakers also passed a bill that would make it harder for public figures to sue individuals and media outlets for exercising First Amendment rights. The bill is meant to go after what are known as strategic lawsuits against public participation, or SLAP. Under the bill, a party that is sued under certain conditions would be able to file for expedited relief and avoid much of the cost associated with the lawsuits. The court could also award the winning party attorney and litigation fees. 
Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said the bill became a priority for him after a 2018 incident in which the Carroll Times Herald was sued by a former Carroll police officer for libel. The newspaper won the lawsuit but was left with tens of thousands of dollars in litigation fees. Holt said this legislation is about protecting our small-town newspapers and media outlets. Turning our attention now to the Business 380 page, there's a story written by Isabella Zaluska of the Gazette, Iowa Interstate Building Rail Truck Facility in Iowa City. Dateline, Iowa City. Iowa Interstate Railroad is preparing to build a transloading facility in southeast Iowa City that will allow the transfer of cargo between rail cars and trucks. The Cedar Rapids-based railroad bought about 30 acres in the city's industrial campus on 420th Street for the facility. The land is shovel-ready, according to the city. Construction is expected to start this spring, with the facility ready for use by mid to late summer. That's according to Iowa Interstate Railroad. The Iowa City City Council last year unanimously approved the $1.5 million sale of the land, which the city has been marketing since 2008. The site includes an existing rail spur and will connect to the 573-mile Iowa Interstate Rail Network, which provides direct access to all seven Class I railroads and various short lines. The facility also provides access to Interstate 80 and Highway 6 and 218. In a statement, Iowa Interstate President and CEO Joe Parsons said, As we have seen with the numerous other transloading sites existing along our network, these facilities provide significant value to our customers and open the door for many other companies to become rail shippers. Trevero, Alliant Energy's transportation subsidiary, opened a 259,000-square-foot warehouse and transload facility in Fairfax in September of 2021 to transfer cargo between rail and trucks. Fairfax campus connects to the Crandick Rail Line, owned by Trevero and is near Interstate 380 and the Eastern Iowa Airport. A transloading facility allows cargo to be moved between rails and another mode of transportation, in this case, trucks. James Matson is Iowa Interstate's Senior Director of Economic Development. He said the railroad company has had requests from customers, mainly in Iowa City and Cedar Rapids, looking to transfer cargo between rails and trucks. Matson said because of the lack of infrastructure to load anything on a rail car in the Iowa City Coralville Corridor, we started thinking about what might work. Matson said the facility will help corridor businesses receive bulk products by rail and give customers options they haven't previously had. Matson said one of the benefits of transloading products to or to or from rail on the Iowa interstate is we connect with so many other railroads. Because of the interest in the project, Matson said the railroad is evaluating the different needs to figure out what is most realistic for the facility. He said export of farm products out of the area or supporting local manufacturers are really what's been driving the requests that we've had so far. A potential customer said the facility would make it possible for their truck drivers to be home every night. Matson said, 
Instead of driving to somewhere east of Chicago, they'll be able to drive to and from this facility, and they'll be able to make several trips a day, and then they'll be able to sleep in their own bed at night. So this should improve the quality of life for some employees that are based in the Iowa City Coralville area. The city of Iowa City also highlighted how rail is the most fuel-efficient way to move freight across the land, giving the city a more climate-friendly shipping option. City Manager Jeff Fruin said in a statement, Projects like this are an excellent example of how actions on the local level contribute to solutions at a larger scale. Moving cargo by rail instead of truck lowers greenhouse gas emissions up to 75%, according to Iowa Interstate. In 2021, the rail company joined the Environmental Protection Agency's Smart Way Transport Partnership, which helps companies advance supply chain sustainability. Manson said, We're just at the very beginning of cities looking on how rail can support their environmental goals. Typically, the focus has been on working with the railroads to allow better flow of products. Fruin added, As we look for ways to continue to bolster our economy while making significant progress toward achieving our climate action goals, this partnership reflects the values and collaborative spirit of Iowa City. Also on the Business 380 page, we have a story written by different members of the Gazette. Broadband provider here partners with Missouri IT Company. Dateline, West Liberty. Liberty Communications Corporation, an Eastern Iowa broadband provider, has announced a partnership with Midwest Data Center, which is a Missouri-based IT services and consulting company. The partnership allows Liberty to provide a 360-degree internet voice and IT solution to small and mid-sized businesses in eastern and southeast Iowa. That's according to Liberty CEO Justin Stinson, who said, In today's interconnected world, a strong IT solution is just as critical as a fast, reliable internet connection, but not all organizations have the resources to do this in-house. He went on to say, together with Midwest Data, we can fill that gap and lend support from all angles of their business. It's a service we've been wanting to provide for years and one that can scale as we grow. In addition to Liberty's fiber internet, data transport managed by Wi-Fi, hosted voice and analog and digital phone services, businesses now can receive IT services through Midwest Data Center, such as dark web monitoring, workstation management, and cloud backup and recovery. Liberty Communications is a private, family-owned company that's been in the Malik family since 1907. Its service area covers West Branch, West Liberty, and the surrounding area. Stinson said, primarily an ILEC, which is an incumbent local exchange carrier, Business during much of the history, Liberty has built a world-class fiber optics network that rivals even the larger industry players. Midwest Data Center, established in 2003 and now with nearly 60 IT employees, provides consulting and managed IT services to businesses across the country. It is based in Rock Point, Rockport, Missouri. Here's a story of interest to anyone who may suffer from anxiety. It's written by Tracy Dennis T. Worry, and the headline says, Don't try to worry less, just worry smarter. 
Tracy says, when I think about worry, I think of the most anxiety-provoking time of my life. It was 2008, and I was pregnant with my first child. At my ultrasound checkup, my husband and I learned that our son would be born with a congenital heart condition. This condition is fatal if not corrected through open-heart surgery within months of birth. For the remainder of my pregnancy, I was almost never completely free of worry. How can we get him the best care? How will this affect his life? Will he be okay? Worry is the thinking part of anxiety, directing us to figure out why we're anxious and what to do about it. It evolved to grab our attention and focus it on the uncertain future, priming us to take useful actions. Worry is a form of problem solving where we use what-if simulations to picture worst and best outcomes to find solutions. In that sense, worry is an attempt to control the future. That's why worry agitates us persistently or even relentlessly because it exists to engage us in dealing with future uncertainties and working to make things turn out all right. Worry has to feel bad to do its job, but it can make anxiety worse, especially when combined with meta-worry, worrying that worry will spiral out of control and do us harm. If people diagnosed with anxiety disorders, such as generalized anxiety disorder, meta-worry often drives the vicious cycle of anxiety. In an attempt to feel more in control and less emotional pain, they worry persistently, like a perpetual motion machine of the mind. Yet, this juggernaut of thoughts and feelings amplifies anxiety to distressing levels and feels so out of control that it causes people to worry more and feel less able to cope. The more one worries, the harder it is to let go. Doesn't all this go to show that we should prevent or squelch worry as soon as possible? That is exactly the wrong thing to do. Suppressing thoughts and feelings never works and paradoxically increases anxiety and worries while reinforcing the belief that worries are uncontrollable and blocking us from figuring out other ways of coping. I discovered this for myself with my son's heart condition. My worries were constant and exhausting, but shunting them aside didn't work, so I tried the opposite. I tried to use my worries. Every time I worried, I went into action mode. I read every paper published on the condition. I asked our nurses and doctors a million questions, and I imagined best and worst case scenarios so I could plan with each detail of my son's care. Worry didn't only prime me to prepare, it helped me survive emotionally because I never stopped believing that if I planned and worked hard enough, our son would live and thrive, even though I also knew that total control over the future is an illusion. Our son is now 14 years old. He loves playing the piano, writing, running, and rustling. As his doctors told us after his surgery, there are no restrictions on what he can do. Worry isn't going anywhere. It's the human condition and can be an advantage in challenging times, but it is also a double-edged sword and can become a serious problem. Suppression of worry simply doesn't work, so we need other approaches so that we can learn to worry well and eventually worry less. Worries send us into the future, and once we've visited there, it's time to let go and return to the present. There are so many ways to do so. Exercise, taking long walks, writing in your journal, 
painting a picture, or speaking with a friend or counselor. There's social support, speaking with someone you trust to help you put your worries into words rather than stew in a bunch of vague distresses. That is one of the best ways to let go. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 10th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thank you for listening. 